Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalized keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewelry, whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle, or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan, and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary, or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for Christmas, or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time, Crafted Arts is the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, Villag Morgan, CF627EB. Or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk. Or maybe just give them a call at 077-89-942-48. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about Creative Space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film, or even theater. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So do you want to have experience in making jewelry? Do you want to pick up a hobby, but do not know what to take or where to start, then look no further than the Veil Jewelry Workshops. Veil Jewelry Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry. They will help you make a range of silverware, including rings, bracelets, and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills, such as soldering, texturing, shaping, and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry, and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veildewelryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at veildewelryworkshops.co.uk or even phone them at 077-89-794248 Hey guys, how's it going? My name is Reese Deans and of course I am your host truly of Creative Space Podcast Welcome back to another episode and today's guest on the show is none other than Daniel H. Wilson. Now if you are not familiar with his work I highly highly suggest you go and read up his books you know read up on Robopocalypse, read up on how to survive a robot uprising. The man is a PhD in robotics guys. You know, he's been there and done that. He's a screenwriter. He talks about his experience with working with Steven Spielberg, Michael Bay, and, and so much more, so much more. So without further ado, let's just get on with the podcast. It's me and Daniel H. Wilson on Creative Space Podcast, guys. So when are you... Um... Now, are you still in Oklahoma or are you in no, California? I'm, I'm in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Oregon? Yeah. That's, that's one of the places I love to go to. Uh, yeah, it is it is nice. Um, I Yeah, I've been loving it here. I've lived here for like, yeah, it's getting on uh, since 2006 or something. <laughs> getting on a long time. <laughs> Why Oregon there? Was it, is, was it something that attracted you to Oregon? It was it uh, something like you know, if you watch enough X Files, you get to <laughs> you see all the uh, all those woods. No, uh, an algorithm matched me uh, here. My my wife, who I was living with in Seattle, and I had a house in Pittsburgh from from going to graduate school there. Uh, she matched uh, with an internship for a psychology degree, and so it was an algorithm that chose Portland for us. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, it chose really well. You know, we're really happy. With it. Oh, that's that's brilliant. No, I think one of the reasons why I want to go to Oregon. And I think they filmed in there was the Goonies. Yeah, just, Astoria. Yeah, uh, I just I'd love to just go there. My cousin, my cousin Andrew, he's been to all corners of America, and he said, "Reese, mm -hmm. Reese, I've been to the uh, the Goonies house," and I was like, "Get out, just go away, leave me alone." <laughs> <laughs> the people that live there apparently hate it when, when people come yeah. and visit. I think but, yeah, because oh. it's um, we've got a. I mean, in Wales, we got a few specific locations mm -hmm. where um, we've got a. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show uh, Gavin and Stacey. I don't know if it's it's no, it was a it was a that's British not one that I've watched. Yeah, it's um, obviously it's a, it was a sitcom in obviously in the UK and 
they filmed it mostly in my hometown of Barry mm. and the houses that they used to film the um the locations obviously they got so popular that loads of people from the corners of the world <laughs> started coming in going oh we like to come and visit your house which at the time the former owner didn't mind uh, mm. she she was very happy to let people in and obviously she said uh, you just can't go upstairs though and they were like yeah that, that's that's fine um, but then since she moved and new people came in the new people were a bit they knew what they were getting themselves into but at yeah. the same time they were they were a bit mm, we don't want so many visitors come in which is fair enough but yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but at the same yeah. time I go you moved into the Gavin and Stacey house <laughs> <laughs> what did you expect yeah <laughs> so now I I read Robopocalypse years ago, like many years ago. And forgive me if I just go, if I say something, it goes, that's not right, Reese, because I have not read it in a while. But um, it was <laughs> it was the, the fact that um, me and my grandfather were talking about uh, science fiction and we were talking about loads of things coming up, especially with Doctor Who, you know, with the 60th anniversary mm-hmm. specials come in, which I cannot wait. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've only just gotten into Doctor Who at my house. Have like, you? I mean, I'm so overdue, right? Oh, uh, dude, but, yeah, you, you got binged- 871 episodes to catch up, <laughs> <No>. mate. <laughs> we binged it. I mean, yeah, we. Uh, I got, yeah, geez. Now my five-year-old, she really likes to pretend to be those creepy angels where they only oh. they come at you when, you, when you're not looking. And so yeah. she sneaks around the house and does this. It's extremely terrifying. Uh, so <laughs> what have you caught up to then? Have you caught up to the, uh, uh, just the modern? Just, yeah, to the yeah. just the modern stuff. The, yeah, uh, yeah. Just the last couple of seasons. No, that's fair enough. Because uh, I started watching it when uh, when it first came back, and of course, obviously, because I'm based in I'm from Wales, and most of the Doctor Who is filmed in Wales. Um, I remember I never heard of Doctor Who until I went to another cousin of mine's house, and we were playing out in the garden, and then to my cousin's mum just went, "Oh, it's on Doctor Who's on," and they went in <laughs> and left me. It was like, what's that about? So I walked in. I walked in. I was like, oh, what's this talk to? And uh, my cousin was saying, oh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And it got to the uh, the gas masks, uh, zombies. Mm-hmm. And, oh, my God. But, yeah. Yeah. So but good. it was the it was the um, it wasn't the first part. It was the second part where everything was coming to fruition. So I started mm-hmm. uh, watching it and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then I, I followed it up. But I so I was a bit of a, like a late boomer when it came mm-hmm. out but then i grew up watching david Tennant. i grew up watching matt yeah. smith and beyond and i'll never forget when i got into the classics i remember there was a mm-hmm. we used to have a Woolworths, and um and my mum would take me and said right uh we'll, we'll treat you to some uh dvds and films and i was i'm mad into my wrestling as well mad into my WWE, mm-hmm. but I walked in and I was like, right, well, what can I get? And all I saw on the uh, shelves were the classic Doctor Who DVDs. And I thought, oh, which one to get? Which one to get? Uh, and then I just picked this Colin Baker, the Six Doctors, Revelation of the Daleks. And mm. ever since then, it was like fandom completely gone into full meltdown. East. Oh, boy. That's it. <laughs> and, yeah. That's all it takes. Oh, yeah. I, uh, no, my my scratch for that got uh, itched uh, with Red Dwarf. I mm. was uh, super into Red Dwarf, and it was way back in the day when blockbusters still existed. Oh yeah, and they had a they had this uh, like this promotion where they said you'll love it or it's for free, and and I kept bringing back the doctor the uh, the Red Dwarf and being like, you know, it was good, it was great, but I don't love it. I'm not in love with it. <laughs> then they would give me the next one for free, and I did that for the whole series because <laughs> I couldn't uh, yeah afford to be renting that many videos, but. Um, yeah, it's cold outside. There's no kind of atmosphere. <laughs> I still love this show. Yeah. Is there any other science fiction? Because oh, obviously you wrote, you write a lot of science fiction sure. novels and stories. But is there any other science fiction shows that really stick in your mind and that you really love? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I like a lot of the more modern, like new stuff where they're kind of taking a different uh, approach to to looking at robotics like if you for instance doctor who you know i mean that's pretty much like that's been around so long that they've got a really sort of like i would say antiquated idea of like what robots are and what they look mm-hmm. like and how they move and stuff like that and so i mean i like stuff like her or um you know ex machina i really liked robot and frank these are like movies um 
that are pretty recent that have unique takes on on robots and you know all that stuff so i like that stuff and then you know of course i just like the usual everything that everybody else likes you know <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah you can't go wrong with just watching a you know a bunch of mandalorians and you know <laughs> he fights a monster and he shoots a robot and move on to the next episode <laughs> Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I love all that stuff. I spend a lot of time writing it though. Uh, so I'm often, um, thinking about it from my own perspective and not really, and also just thinking about oh, how I wish they had done that better or different. And, and, uh, and I also spend time, uh, I'm a screenwriter, so I spend time adapting, um, other people's science fiction in, into scripts. And so a lot of times I'm thinking about when I read like, oh, and how would you turn that into a movie? And, you know, you know, what would you focus on and what would you throw away? So. I it was it was interesting that you say that because of course where science fiction is heading now, you know you got mm-hmm. the the height of which I'll ask in a minute about AI, but you you got um, the power of technology on social media and and the way technology is going with mobile devices and except and another another things as well. Um, do you think science fiction is going in the same direction of how much the the impact and the height it's getting? compared to like um, how it did back in the 50s and 60s where because of the height of the Cold War, the, the science fiction yeah. genre just took off because a lot of uh, things of nuclear and the mon- yeah. giant monsters and everything. Do you think it's the same way now? Uh, I don't know. You know, I feel like uh, if you... So I wrote a book called Where's My Jetpack <laughs> where I kind of <laughs> went through all the uh, like you know, where all those technologies of the past that were of the future, you know, where they're at and what happened to them all. Uh, so yeah, I think that vibe from like the fifties and sixties was just like way more optimistic ultimately. Right. I mean, people had been looking around and they were like, uh, you know, I don't want food that was grown in the dirt. Technology is the answer. Right. And it was like, technology was the answer for everything. You know, I, they wanted like nuclear pens, you know, atomic pens and things like that. And like, I don't think people are that optimistic about technology anymore, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty clear that it's not always going to be, you know, put to use to like save humankind or help anybody except for yeah. like a few tech billionaires. So it's like, uh, it's not as optimistic now. One thing I find really interesting though, is how all, everything comes back around. Like, so I, I got a, a PhD in robotics. I spent a lot of time building robots at, at Carnegie Mellon uh, University in Pittsburgh and uh, you know, while I was there, like I used to think that a lot of the Asimov stuff was silly, right? Like the three laws of robotics, silly, you know, I mean, you don't talk to a robot, you program a robot, right? You tell it what to do. And then, uh, you know, this all these general artificial neural networks come up, the chat GPT stuff starts showing up. And you realize, oh, yeah, like uh, it does make sense to like have a robot psychologist now. <laughs> I mean, people do talk to robots. The idea of something being robotic as in definition, it's predictable, it's deterministic. It's all that stuff's out the window now. If you ask yeah. like I got kids, if you ask kids, you know, to describe robots, they're not going to describe like, you know, beep boop. They're going to describe like unpredictable, hallucinating uh, bullshitting machines that, uh, that, you know, come up with stuff that, that you'd never predict. And it's just a completely different idea of what robots are and, and what they mean. And, and I love that Asimov kind of had it all figured out all the way back then with, yeah. um, with the idea of robot psychologists and things. It was, it was funny because me, me and, uh, my grandfather, <laughs> I mean, we, we both love science fiction. We both love talking about science and, in all shapes and forms. And I said to him about uh, AI and I said, why is it that the human race, whether we, you know, tech billionaires and other billionaires, you know, you talk about Bill Gates and Elon Musk and everyone, everyone, you know, it's like, why are they producing all these technological things where they're just going to make the human race obsolete? What is it with that? Why is the human race want to make themselves obsolete? And uh, my grandfather turned around and went, because we're fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do wonder about that if we do have some kind of built-in self-destruction, self-destruction, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we build tools. And if we show up and we find tools that are already there, then we build better versions of those tools. And so it seems like uh, uh, that's kind of the way that our civilization right now is set up. Uh, I think there have been other civilizations in the past that were more in equilibrium. And maybe the technologies they developed were more sustainable and would keep their civilizations alive 
and thriving longer than maybe this model that we're using now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but every year we build new technologies, we increase our capabilities for destruction and for doing good things. And then, um, you know, typically we go like 60, 40 toward destruction <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and that's the slow collapse that we've been living through. So yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully we'll figure it out. Right. Um, yeah. but I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I think a walk in the woods is a really is probably a, a, the most powerful thing that you can do. Yeah. Just go for a walk. It's, it's fine. Just go for a walk. <laughs> go for a walk in the woods. Just look around. I mean, because all of this technology stuff, it wants you to think that it's your world, but it's not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what do you make of AI then? What is your perspective of it? Uh, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I, 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 I write AI characters. I, uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about AI in terms of non-human intelligence and whether it's like first contact, you know, to talk to an AI and, and w the current models of generating, you know, intelligence, artificial intelligence are really kind of like, you know, you feed it the internet and then it spits out different likely prob probabilistically likely combinations of stuff that's happened on the internet. <laughs> it's like, really? Like, that's what we want. Uh, that's where we get our, our best examples of human behavior and stuff. It's all the, all the things we've said on the internet. And so it's kind of disappointing, right? Because, yeah. you know, I thought that they were going to figure out some math, you know, that, that was going to emulate consciousness, that we were going to have a tr true non-human intelligence. And instead, we've just got word salad that's, you know, sp spitting stuff back to us uh that just sounds really convincing and that's i mean i think it really is it's it's actually it's bullshitting i mean it's like, like that's the, the definition of of just bullshitting around right and, and so instead of we're getting this weird echo of ourselves instead of a truly unique you know new entity out there so i'm disappointed <laughs> and uh and also you know it's i feel like it's being so far put to use really in a you know a fully full capitalism right that's the mm -hmm. way that it came it's not like nasa right you, you look at sometimes you have these like bigger than a nation bigger than you know for all humankind type endeavors you know that that humans are capable of of doing you know we built the international space station right we, we've had some endeavors like that been to the moon stuff like that where it really came from not from a, just somebody's pocketbook sort of situation and ai didn't come like that so ai showed up fully uh, you know open ai broke it open jumped ahead all the other companies that had been working on this that didn't quite have it ready all had to just pull the trigger and go or else lose out on whatever market share so we're like uh we're at the whims of you know capitalism right here in terms <laughs> of how this stuff's being unrolled and that's pretty scary uh and ultimately i mean i suspect that it's going to result in some pretty uh sort of crummy outcomes um in terms of how the ai is employed but yeah. uh, we'll see yeah james cameron was right <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean even that yeah i yeah i don't know i don't i don't think anything so simple as just uh all humans just kill all humans is going to be in the cards uh i think it's actually it's just much more scary than that you know i mean i just imagine uh again like I've just noticed that, you know, human beings are very happy to substitute a, a virtual world over top of their actual world, right? And so somehow our brains can't tell the difference between like whether somebody talks trash to us in the street or whether they do it online. And so um, that's kind of what's scary is we've got sort of this infinite number of new personalities that are generated online that can just talk to you and tell you anything you want. They can agree to anything that you suggest and find evidence that you're right. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to be leading probably millions of people down millions of rabbit holes that, um, yeah, are going to be pretty scary. Moving on to where uh, uh, you, um, you said, uh, I've done a bit of research and uh, this uh, popped into my head. Obviously, you're part of the uh, Cherokee Nation, uh, nation mm -hmm. so uh, Native American. And I... I just wanted to know how important is it to you as a Cherokee that you put in uh, Native American characters in your books, you know, and how how do you feel when uh, other filmmakers or other writers do that in different ways? How do you approach that? Sure. I mean, look, it's like I grew up in Oklahoma in the Cherokee Nation um, on the Cherokee. It's a 
technically a reservation now. Uh, and uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, every these are just sovereign nations that uh, overlap overlap with um, you know state and counties and everything you know that you have in any state. Uh, so these aren't like walled off reservations or anything like that. There's just a lot of native people in Oklahoma. Uh, and that's where I grew up and that's what I grew up around. And so that shows up in my work a lot. Right. And sometimes you'll never believe this, but they have characters in my books and novels that are in, that are just uh, happen to be native for no reason. Mm. <laughs> just, you just wanted a it. <laughs> person. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to. I mean, there's no look. Like I write from what I know, I write, you know, the people that I know, the, the way they talk, you know, my memories, my experiences. So like, so there's going to be native stuff in, in my work. Uh, over the years, I've started to realize that, you know, that's not represented in, in as, you know, in a lot of stuff. And so it's become a bigger, uh, it's become a bigger deal to like, to make sure that I do represent that and that I do have that in my work because it's not, you know, it is not coming from a lot of other people. And also like what I found is that the way I write, period, is I love genre, right? I love science fiction. I've read every every damn science fiction thing I get my hands on for the last 20 years, right? And and what you find is that certain themes and everything sort of appear and, and you develop these sort of assumptions about what you're about to read. Oh, it's a robot uprising. Oh, it's a zombie thing or whatever. And subverting those sort of expectations is what you want to do as a writer. And so I started out, I got a, a degree in robotics. I knew a lot about robots. So when I wrote Robopocalypse, I've, I funneled all that information, all that technical detail into the book so that I could subvert people's expectations about what they were going to get, which is Terminator. They thought they were going to get Terminator. It's called Robopocalypse. I mean, hell, it's a solid chance you're going to get a Terminator scenario. It turns out to be much more complex and in my point of view, interesting, right? Um, I mean, imagine trying to write a villain who just wants to kill all humans. Why? No reason. Programmed. That's the most boring motivation I could possibly mm. think of. You could never get away with that, right? So, so that's that's how those that early stuff happened. Well, I mean, guess what? There's a lot of assumptions about native characters, what it means. And I I write science fiction, and I write native characters. And guess what, man? Those two things, people don't think of those two things being combined, right? When they think of native stuff, they think of history, like the past. They think of like yeah, you know, a lot of stereotypes. Mm. And so for me, it's the same deal that's happening. I know I'm a domain expert in this, in this area. And so I use that knowledge to subvert expectations when people go in, you know, thinking that they're going to get one thing and I, and you just give them, you know, the truth. And so over the years, you know, I've, I write screenplays. I've done a lot of, uh, in film and in, and in the publishing world, um, I found that, yeah, that's, that's really valuable to have that perspective. And also it's valuable to the tribes to give their citizens that agency to tell their own stories. So, you mm. know, like Scorsese and those guys out there in the Osage Nation, uh, that's tricky stuff, right? There's some Osage that aren't particularly stoked about Killers of the Flower Moon being made yeah. by, uh, yeah, white guys, right? But they tried to do their best, to be fair. Like they came in and understood that they're in, that this is tricky, right? Um, and they did their best to sort of empower everybody. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're not a native director, a native writer, then um, you're you're going to be playing scared. That's the way I think of it. Uh, mm. Just like Scorsese and those guys, they're playing scared. They can't really get in there and fuck around and like and really, really uh, take risks because they're already on thin ice. Right. So. Mm. So, for instance, I have a, a friend named Sterling Harjo who made a show called Reservation Dogs uh, on FX, which is it's all native. Everybody's native and pretty much in a show. And man, they are making fun of being Indian. They're making fun of all kinds of stuff because they can because it's their world. Right. And, and they have full agency and license to to really dig in and just like be real. And sometimes that means making fun of yourself. Sometimes it means being very serious, you know, like secret stuff and like whatever it's up to them to do it and and you can't you know and i'm not saying that if you're not native you can't write native characters or anything like that i'm saying that you'll always be playing a little bit scared if you don't really have mm -hmm. if you don't have that background and look i mean i write lots of characters that aren't native and like uh you know i, I i'm not saying that people can't do that i think that's you know a part of a part of writing and putting yourself mm -hmm. there but 
but it's been really interesting to watch that evolve and to watch everybody kind of realize this, you know, and now suddenly they're like, okay, well, if this is a native IP, like let's find native people to write that stuff. And so, um, so that's been great. I mean, that's, that's really nice that people have come around to realizing that. Mm. How did you feel about Killers of the Flower Moon yourself personally? Uh, I haven't seen it quite yet, but uh, oh, right. it's just, um, man, it just feels depressing, bro. Like uh, <laughs> it's, it's a depressing story. Like I'm from mm -hmm. Tulsa. Like, of course that story is super bummer. You know, we had the race riots in Tulsa, like the, the Black Wall Street stuff. Like I went to school there, Booker T. Washington's right there. Uh, that's my high school. And like, it's just uh, all that stuff is heavy, man. And like, mm -hmm. I gotta be in the right mood before I want to like get into that. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I'd rather true. I'd rather have yeah native people in outer space blowing shit up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> let's do that for a little while, yeah. can we? Like, yeah. prey, man. I was into that. Uh, I've seen prey. You know, I saw that. Like, yeah. they came out the the predator remake where uh, I think uh, they had yeah the the predator was hunting uh, indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway. <laughs> but did the predator but that, that's what i was thinking because i i loved uh, prey because it wasn't the fact that oh the predator was hum hunting indigenous people it's like oh no it's well reversed because what does the predator know that they know and it's it, i always thought it was like a role reverse because obviously the hunted was being the hunter so was being I, hunted yeah i mean well that's kind of that's always the third act in a predator movie yeah. <laughs> i mean that's yeah. the satisfaction right but uh here's a, here's what i really liked about it is that, there's this growing sort of understanding and realization among uh, the, the, the current Western colonial civilization that we live in, uh, uh, you and I. And uh, what they're realizing is something about technology, right? Which is that Native people had amazing technologies. Their technologies were not the kind of technologies that destroy the environment and, and, are, you know, and use the way, that, the way that we've used the technology. But it's like, you know, for instance, they showed up to, you know, North America and they were like, wow, you know, the, the colonists and they were like, wow, these forests are beautiful. Like, why are these forests so amazingly manicured? <laughs> these people are noble savages living in, at one with nature and nature is bending out of the way for them and helping them out. No, they had honed technologies to cur curate their forests to help them live in equilibrium, to, to survive, to keep people alive. And they'd been doing it for thousands of years. That's why the forest looks so great. That's why whenever you try to sort of bring back some of this technology and apply it, uh, it reduces wildfires. It like, you know, it's, they're realizing this was really advanced stuff that was already there. And, and indigenous people all over the world had this stuff. And then, you know, mostly they get, they get wiped out by disease and stuff like that. And so then colonists show up and there's nobody there. And they just think that the woods are really pretty. <laughs> it's like, and then they get get busy cutting them down. So um, I, I love this notion. It's something I've been thinking a lot about in my fiction. This notion of sort of what if the technology we're looking for isn't doesn't look like what we think it does? What if the really advanced stuff, uh, the stuff that really keeps human beings alive, because that's what tools are supposed to do. What if it doesn't look like all this bullshit that we've been creating? <laughs> all these uh, silly little chat GPTs and stuff like that. You know, what if it's out there in the woods? Yeah. And, uh, and that's something I've been thinking about. Oh, <laughs> how to <laughs> just going on to chat GPT now. I was like, how to solve the midlife crisis? Go to the woods. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hey, there, yeah. that's where I'm at. <laughs> um, but, you know, it actually it started. Uh, this kind of started because I was reading uh, I was reading a, a journal article that was really looking at SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And it was looking at the colonists sort of, uh, the underlying sort of colonizer themes that are there. And like, look, NASA and everybody, I, I love NASA. Like, I mean, this, I don't think they're out to like get anybody or anything, but there are some sort of, it, when they're looking for a civilization in outer space, right? There's an assumption of what civilization is and what it should look like. And so if you're making that assumption from a Western perspective, it's going to be really different than if you're making it from an indigenous perspective, right? Those are different types of civilizations. Uh, we're talking about equilibrium, sustainability, locality. So like if you think of Fermi's paradox, right? This question, where is everybody in outer space? I love Fermi's paradox. The basic tenet, the underlying assumption of Fermi's paradox is that any species, alien species out in the galaxy, 
would immediately start colonizing every star <laughs> and just spreading exponentially like locusts throughout the entire galaxy like we would if we had that technology like this particular civilization would what an assumption right mm -hmm. maybe you shouldn't look for pollution signatures you know in their atmospheres maybe you shouldn't be looking for space junk maybe if there are uh aliens they will have figured out a better type, way to run their civilization. Maybe they would be in equilibrium somewhere, living sustainably <laughs> locally. Like, uh, I mean, it's a crazy thing. And so, uh, and so I th I th again, it just kind of ties in with thinking about advanced technology and, and what it should look like and whether the kind of current path we're on really generates uh, you know, a civilization that hangs around. Mm. Do you know, it's it's amazing you say that as well, because uh, we we always talk and then you're talking about the technologies, you know, going back hundreds of years, thousands of years and everything. And um, uh, there was a documentary and uh, me going back to my grandfather again, we were just watching it and it's and he was just sat there thinking, how come archaeologists don't how come archaeologists seem to deny the the technologies of back in the day when they seem to be more advanced than yeah. what we've got. He, and and it, now this is a 74 year old old man, you yeah. know, who, who grew up during the cold war and he was there going, you know, they got these big, these were his words. You know, we got these big bastard boulders and the way they're structured and everything. Right. And they said, they couldn't have done that with, with little hammers and chillets and a piece of rope. They couldn't have done it. So yeah. why deny yeah. it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they couldn't have done it. They, it was must have been aliens. We couldn't have been native people, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh -huh. I, yeah. No, this is this is also common in um, in North America. So there's there's an entire sort of Mississippian culture. They're called the mound builders, and so mm -hmm. they uh, they built all of these huge earthen mounds all up and down the river. And so, and in fact, if you if you go back a couple hundred years or farther even. When people were first kind of uh, well, when when settlers were coming through, and all the native population had been devastated by, you know, by disease already, and they would look for a spot, you know, to build a new city, and every time they would look for a new spot to build a new city, there would already be mounds there because there had already been a city there because people could are already identify the best places to defend, the best places for trade, the best places for the, you know, the climate and everything, and so like. Uh, when people started finding these mounds, they, they were saying, well, this kind of indicates that there was like a really big civilization here. And so, of course, the, uh, the prevailing theory immediately became that there were there must have been white people here. <laughs> and so everybody started going through all these mental, you know, like all these crazy theories to, to find a way to put white people there building mm. these uh, building these earthworks. And so. Um, I mean, there's a lot of mental gymnastics that happen when people sort of just can't, uh, it doesn't fit in their mindset for, uh, you know, for this stuff to, to have existed and for, you know, indigenous people to have built it. So I think though now, maybe we're finally coming around, right, to, to mm -hmm. understanding people are people and like, people are smart. And if you leave people in a place long enough, they'll, uh, you know, they'll figure stuff out. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's like let, let, as the saying goes, nature will take its course, and life will find a way. Yeah, you know. For... Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. and I love thinking about the mound builders. There. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> so but we can yeah, and we can talk about it loads and loads because it's so interesting because there's so many uh, gaps in time where we could go. How how can we fill that? What is within these the yeah? Gaps times, I mean, you know, we it's it's been do that to say. I do that with my fiction a lot, you know, like yeah. uh, I have a novel called The Clockwork Dynasty that's about a race of humanoid robots that have been around since antiquity and they don't understand how they were built uh, and they're running out of batteries, <laughs> essentially. So they're, they're cannibalizing each other to extend their own lifespans because they don't know how to fix themselves. And, they, and you realize over the course of the novel that they've been pushing humanity toward a more technological future so that they can hopefully get us to a point where we figure out how to repair them. Mm. Um, and it's like, it's really fun novel because I jump all through time. I jump all the way back to like, you know, uh, just, I mean, if you go back five, 10,000 years even, just not that long, 
you get a whole different set of megafauna and like all kinds of different animals and things that aren't extinct yet due to, you know, the Anthropocene uh, time period having begun. Um, and it's just such an interesting, it's just such an interesting thing to think that the people then were the same as we are now, right? They're, they're physiologically just the same. And so what were they doing for the last 100,000 years mm. or 200,000 years? And that's just, and that's what makes people think it's like, well, come on, you got to think like that. And it's, it's really interesting to think as well. Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalized keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewelry, whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle, or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan, and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary, or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for Christmas, or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time, Crafted Arts is the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, Villag Morgan, CF627EB, or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk, or maybe just give them a call at Oh, double seven eight nine nine four two four eight. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about Creative Space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film, or even theater. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So, do you want to have experience in making jewelry? Do you want to pick up a hobby? But do not know what to take or where to start, then look no further than the Veil Jewelry Workshops. Veil Jewelry Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry. They will help you make a range of silverware, including rings, bracelets, and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills, such as soldering, texturing, shaping, and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry, and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veildewelryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at veildewelryworkshops.co.uk or even phone them at 07789794248. Um, now, going on to how you started as a writer, what, what, because mm -hmm. obviously you got a PhD in robotics, but yeah. What was it that made you want to become a writer? Was it the fact that you uh, maybe picked up a, a book and you thought, I want to be like this writer? Or you thought, you know what, I want to write a lot of uh, stories that I want to write. But what was it? It was uh, short stories. Um, there's this thing about short stories that uh, are really well done where, yes, a short story can just be a glimpse into a really interesting world. But that's not my jam. Like I like that, but that's what really gets me going. I love a short story that is set up like a mouse trap, and you get to the end and it snaps shut, you know, the nine billion names of God, right? Like you get to the last sentence of that and you go, oh, shit. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, uh, it's amazing. And, and it, it, often that mouse trap will snap shut at the end of a short story and it will fill you with wonder or it'll blow your mind. But then often it'll, it'll make you feel an emotion, right? And I, uh, I love getting into my emotions with, uh, with books that I read, right? I, if a book is sad, I'm crying. If it's funny, I'm laughing. Like I get into it. I mean, I want, that's what it exists to do is to, is to invoke those emotions, right? And so uh, at the time as a kid, I was really into reading science fiction. I was really into programming uh, video games, you know, Pascal, let's date me. Uh, I was programming Pascal, C++. And uh, I started to think of, the short stories as a kind of code that the human brain compiles into, into sort of like a waking dream, right? And I thought, man, that is neat. Like, I want to take people, I want to write that code and have people read it and compile it in their brains and, uh, and experience these things and take them places and make them feel things. And so that's what I did. You know, I got good at it um, at eventually. I, it took me a really long time. Um, long, I, I mean, essentially, I wanted to be writing science fiction from since the day I was like about 16. Um, and I started then. 
And it took me until I was 26 before I ever sold any science fiction. And, and by then I had gotten a degree in robotics and done all this other stuff because if I couldn't do the science fiction, I'd just do the science, you know I mean? It's the closest mm. thing to it, so. How to survive a robot uprising. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, if there was a, a robopocalypse like the one you've written, um, I must use that as this is the guide. This will be your yeah. savior masses. Where did, it, where did it come from? Was it just something that you wanted to write for fun or did, was it something that you wanted to make people think? What was it? Uh, what was it the was for yeah. fun? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was for fun, like because I was around roboticists and we were all in our 20s and having an awesome time. And there were there were people from all over the world and there were just really smart people doing really amazing things you know i mean that's the whole goal of a of a of a graduate degree like that is is you have to go out and do something nobody did before which for me just meant getting more and more specific until i found something nobody else had up you know because god there's so many smart people they're very 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 smart uh out there and uh and thank goodness too but uh so yeah, I realized that none of them were trying to destroy humanity, um, yet we were all building robots. And so there was this big disconnect between pop culture and you know, the, real, the real study of robotics. And so um, I decided just to take the pop culture completely seriously and mm. interviewed all these roboticists about, uh, you know, all right, you build legs. How do you trip a robot? You know, okay, you do vision systems. Like what would you do to, to fool a robot and to get away from it? And uh, yeah, and then just put it all together into how to survive a robot uprising. Um, the good thing about that was it was just a small book. It was a joke book. It was highly designed, very pretty. Uh, Richard Hornsby did all the art um, and it was amazing, but uh, it got uh, option to be, to be a movie. It never, that never came through, but I got introduced to screenwriting uh, through that book as well, which is pretty cool. Um, to, to have that experience right at the very beginning of my career so that I could kind of have both careers happening at the same time. So writing television and film and then also writing novels. Is there, are there, are there any uh, films, so say there's a film that you like and a film that you dislike involving robots, what film would you say is spot on when it comes to robotic and robotics and what is mm -hmm. the film that you dislike that is portray <laughs> not portraying you know, robots in a different yeah. way it's, it's, but in a way that uh what, what i'll tell I you what <laughs> a movie i really liked recently which i did not expect this uh was megan right the horror movie gerard mm -hmm. johnstone directed it uh and i thought this is gonna make a mockery of robotics like right this is a scary doll movie like mm -hmm. annabelle except they're using a robot you know but I love horror movies. And so I, I watched it and I was like, oh my God, they like totally, the, there's nothing in there that really offended my sensibilities about robots. And I was like, wow, that was, I mean, fun, way to go. <laughs> um, and then the, the movies that I don't like or when they really humanize robots too much or they make assumptions that a robot would want to be human or, or give a bunch of a damn about humans at all. And so stuff like Bicentennial Man, I'm just like, woof. And then, you know, that, uh, that iRobot, stuff that just disrespects the source material. So like the Will Smith movie, iRobot, which was literally a different movie. And they just had the, uh, they had the IP to, uh, to Asimov's iRobot stories. And so they just called it iRobot. Uh, come on, that's weak. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, I, and I don't really dig very much. But, uh, but yeah, just, you know, speaking of, of lately, I really, I really had a good time watching Megan. <laughs> what about artificial intelligence, the one that Spielberg made? How did you feel about that one? Because didn't wasn't it supposed to be... I haven't seen it in a long time, by the way. Yeah. Um, wasn't it something to do with the fact that he wanted to be a real boy, proper Pinocchio style? And Yeah. Uh, well, how did you yeah. feel about that? Well, I... I uh, actually, I really like that movie. <laughs> and that movie was really personal for Steven Spielberg, you know, because it was, uh, it was yeah. his uh, friend had started it, right? And so- Yeah, Kubrick, when uh, I started Kubrick. Kubrick. Yeah, so, so that, you know, that whole movie was really, really personal for Spielberg. Um, and, you know, which is kind of a funny thing to say since millions and millions of people watch his <laughs> movies. But uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And the reason is because again, my feels, man, it got me. Like I was, it, that kid was designed to elicit an emotional response. That to me made sense. 
he was designed from the ground up. That's what his his raison d'etre was. Is the reason he was there, and so he he did that for both of his parents and also for the audience, right? Mm. And then to see to see the kid go on that journey, um, yeah, I was I was into it. I also really liked the uh, what was the guy's name, Gigolo Joe or whatever uh, that character because I mean I thought something really profound occurred there that that really got me thinking with um so that was played by uh who's the guy um jude law jude law yeah so jude law plays this 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 prostitute robot and he's very flashy and good looking and he looks this woman in the eye and says you know you are the most beautiful woman i've ever seen and he totally means it right like he's a machine that's designed to to say that and he totally means it and then it's also totally worthless, right? <laughs> because he's not a person. Mm-hmm. And even though he looks like a person, he does a stint, you know, assuming he does everything people can do, uh, you know, and, and yet he, he has this utter truth to him and it's also utterly worthless. And I, and I think a lot about that in terms of, you think about what's the last thing that a human will be able to do that a, a machine can't. You know, mm-hmm. it ain't painting. It isn't holding a conversation. It isn't, we, you know, we always just circle in tighter every time they get a new capability. I think part of maybe one of the last things that we'll, we'll have is the actual act of being human, of knowing what it means to be human. And therefore, when you create something from a human perspective, like that gives it meaning. Like if you're writing a, a biography or something and and you really went there and you really did that and you felt that and you lost that and you gained that reading it, you want to know a human really experienced it. And, and there's value to that. Uh, and a machine can't do that yet, but it probably will sooner or later. <laughs> um, speaking of Spiel- yeah. Speaking of Spielberg again, obviously Robo apocalypse, uh, another book that you've written Spielberg had his uh, sights on getting the rights to it. Now, before we mention about the uh, the possibility of it being made into a film one day, how did that come about? How did Robo Apocalypse come to fruition? Oh uh, no, I mean it was it was crazy. It was the craziest couple of days, yeah, probably of my life. Like uh, I had written a f- fiction for the first time. I had written a hundred pages of Robo Apocalypse. Um, we were trying to sell it in New York to publishers and we were getting some interest and I was really very excited about that. And then, um, yeah, like on a Friday at like 10 o'clock, uh, Amblin reached out to my entertainment lawyer and they made a deal to buy the rights. And, and then I was, uh, yeah, then I met Steven Spielberg like three days later, (laughs) ate cookies with him, like, and Andrew Goddard, uh, who was, who wrote the first draft of the script, um, so I was, yeah, it was, it was really incredible. Um, and of course I still had to finish writing the book. <laughs> so I was picking Steven's brain as much as I could during those, those meetings, just, okay, so what do you think should happen? You know? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, then I finished writing that and Drew finished writing the script, but it was unfortunate that the script is being written at the same time as the novel, uh, because Drew would just call and be like, tell me, stuff i need to know what happens in the book because i'm just writing stuff and and also uh there are a lot of native characters in Mm. in the book and so there ends up being you know it would have been nice to have a native writer on on the script at some point um so yeah so what happened was that happened it was amazing the book did really well uh it was great and um ultimately the movie got delayed I guess like a couple of weeks before uh, it was meant to be shooting um, which was yeah uh, you know quite a <laughs> it was pretty uh, pretty big blow right I mean I was very excited to uh, to see that happen obviously but uh, that was 10 years ago right maybe mm-hmm. longer so in that time uh, Robopocalypse has continued they've continued to have screenwriters work on it it's I've even uh at one point, I worked on it for for Stephen and for Michael Bay, uh, and did a draft. Uh, I mean, my, as my screenwriting career has has continued to develop over the years, I finally got to the point where I was able to to have a take a whack at it, um, and it is still it is still uh, on their plate. They're still excited about it. I still have phone calls with Amblin. Um, 
it's in, it's incredible but yeah it's been gestating for so long and uh the joke is that uh we tell i tell them you know we got to do this before it's a historical documentary and we got to do it while it's still science fiction man <laughs> before it just becomes like you know like saving private ryan or something <laughs> um so uh so anyway that's the story on robo apocalypse i mean it's still out there uh and you know i have of course moved on and written geez four more novels and sold a lot of other stuff um that i'm excited about uh but it's always my it's i think of it alternately it's kind of like it's like my white whale <laughs> um it's out there someday i'm gonna uh someday i'm gonna harpoon it and we're gonna i'm gonna be in a theater and i'm gonna watch robo apocalypse mm. it's gonna be or maybe i'll just see it on netflix i don't know <laughs> oh god hopefully not on netflix you can see it on a big screen i would love you know. that yes Big screen moment. It, I think Steven Spielberg also likes to watch things on the big screen. So yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Well, but what was it like to sit with Spielberg and just talk to him? Because if I was, I mean, I'm a playwright myself. And if I wrote to him and Spielberg was like, I'm really interested. I just, and if I sat down with him, I'd just be there going, you yeah. made fucking, you made Hook. I don't care about ET. <laughs> I was like, you made I Hook. I just watched <laughs> Hook again. Was, oh, yeah, so, so fun. I, uh, it's, it's intimidating, right? I mean, I don't know. So like I have, uh, I've been working in, in Hollywood for a long time and I've been living in Portland. And so like, I have got just sort of this collection of experiences that are pretty cool, right? I mean, it's undeniably very interesting moment, intimidating, but also I, I just don't, um, I don't take any of it too seriously, you know? Um, it, it's, it's really fun. It's really interesting it's really interesting to see how people behave. Mm. Um, and, and I will say like most people that I've interacted with, especially Steven Spielberg are just amazing. I mean, you would think who could tell this person anything, right? But I think the really great ones, they, they pull in the smartest people they can find and they listen to other people. Mm. And, you know, I've had experiences with other directors that weren't like that. <laughs> and I'm just like, are you serious right now, bro? Like, do you hear what you're saying? And like, I, life's too short for me. Like, I don't even want to work with somebody like that. It's just like in LA, like, it's really just about finding people you get along with and then trying to make it happen and then trying to make it happen again and again. And so, you know, like I dig Sterling Harjo, right? I dig Steven Spielberg. I, there's a lot of people I really like working with. Um, and, uh, you know, and it really doesn't matter how famous they are, really. Like, there's people that have done stuff that nobody knows about that I'm so freaking excited about. And I, I'm just as giddy. <laughs> like, I just, and I have these moments and I'm very lucky because I, you know, what I have representation there and they can connect me to people. And so I got really excited about this, uh, this, this little movie on, um, it's more like a music video, but it's on Shudder and it's called Blood Machines. And, mm. Oh, I'm crazy for it. I'm crazy for it. If I could ever make anything with with those directors that did that, I mean, I would be just as excited as you know whoever you can end up with in Hollywood. Like, uh, so really, you know, it's all just a it's yeah. a lark. So it's it's mad to think as well that you. Um, I I look at filmmaking now as. You, you got your Spielbergs, you got your Scorseses, you got your Michael Bays, and um, but there's like YouTubers now, they're breaking into d directing and producing films, and uh, mm -hmm. and it's like a lot of people are worried that um, because YouTubers are breaking in into the to making films and everything, and they're saying, Oh, they're getting the easy way. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was like, Nah, there's like the I call them the I, I can't remember their actual uh last names but it's the Raka Raka boys who who made that film oh what's that film what is the film it's uh 824 made it it was a horror film what is it called that's gonna bug me now um but they made that and it became a, such a hit and now Markiplier he's he's gone on to make a film and and apparently that's going on success and it, and you think to yourself well if if they're going to take it seriously, like the, those guys are going to do it, then don't worry. You know, they. The, I'd rather those YouTubers, you know, stand shoulder to shoulder with the likes of Spielberg and that if they're going to take it seriously. So yeah, no, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong. People should hit it from any angle they can get into it. Like mm. there is no real sort of, uh, you know, trajectory on getting into this thing. There's everybody's reinventing it constantly, and it's really oh, yeah. just about did you 
did you make something that was, you know, entertaining, right? So I'm excited to see it from wherever it comes from. Like, uh, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm working with Sean Heater on a project and, and she did Coda. And, uh, you know, you see like, who's going to predict, right, that, that she's going to make a movie with, uh, with the stars who are deaf. And, you know, in Hollywood, they would say, uh, you know, I'm not going to make this movie because we don't have any deaf movie stars, right? Well, then she goes and makes deaf movie stars. Marley Mann is already famous, but mm. like, you know, Troy Kotzer and like, you know, the guy wins an Oscar and it's like, mm. okay, that's how you do it. You do it by doing it. You know, you mm. can't sit around and say, oh, we don't have any native, uh, we don't have any A-list native actors or something. Well, no, you you make it. And then you, and that's how you make the, uh, you know, great writers, directors, actors, like, you know, they come through the process. And so um, it's one thing I love about Reservation Dogs is there's so many new native actors and writers and that are now on the scene and are like, you know, shown what they can do. And it's like, they're going to go out and they're going to make a lot of amazing stuff. You know, and that's going to be awesome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's how you do it is by doing it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you sit around and wait on Hollywood to give you permission all the time, then you know, then you will be following some pretty uh, strict rules and you will get some pretty homogenous outcomes, you know? Yeah. There's something about the connection with Spielberg and you, because of course you tried working together on Robo Apocalypse. And also there's another connection there where he made Jurassic Park and it was also written by Mm -hmm. Michael Crichton. And of course you did the sequel to his book, the the Adromina. Andromeda Strain uh, book. So, mm-hmm. how did you get that? And I, I've never really, I've heard of book sequels, but it was very rare for me that I've, I've seen. I've like the only novel sequel that I've read was Doctor Sleep, mm-hmm. uh, with Stephen King. So I was really, yeah. I was like, wow, you know, you followed <laughs> Michael Crichton. That must have been, you know, a, a bit of a, not a stressful moment, but a bit of a like a. Oh, some shoes to fill in, kind of moment. Mean like finishing a novel while Spielberg's yeah. waiting on the pages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, like that stuff's intimidating. And those are big shoes. Those are big names. Those are people who have become brands, you know, they're internationally recognized. But here's the thing at the end of the day, you're writing a book. I'm not like, running across a field with a football or something, right? Like nobody's watching me. I'm not on stage. It's like doing your homework versus taking a test, right? Like I like homework. I'll sit, I'll get my homework just right. It'll take as much time as I need to do it. I'll stay up all night if I have to, but it's just me and the homework. And so that's the way I kind of think of writing is offline you know i'm not there performing uh, in front of anybody i can just go home and i can think deeply about it and i can just work on it so the way that uh the andromeda evolution came about was uh well <laughs> uh i have a friend named ernie klein who wrote a book called ready player one mm. and armada and ready player two and uh ernie got his movie made by spielberg and so <laughs> Ernie called me and was like, dude, I have bad news or good news, however you want to look at it. You know, it's like, uh, I think Steven's going to do my movie <laughs> now. And I was like hoping that Robo would get made. So, um, so anyway, uh, Ernie had been talking to uh, Crichton's son, which is the, um, which is the, the, the company that, that runs all of Crichton's stuff. So Crichton passed away in 2008 and uh and they were looking for someone to continue sort of in his footsteps with his IP and sort of play in the, in the same sandbox that he created. And um, there are certain similarities. So Crichton um, studied to become a medical doctor and never practiced. So he started writing while he was in med school and then that was successful. And then he took a lot of that technical expertise and he put it into his novels. And in particular, the first novel that had his name on it uh andromeda strain which is like one of my top favorites and so that one has a lot of medical knowledge in it because he was like in his 20s and he just got a medical degree and he never became a doctor and so i did the same thing i got this whole degree in robotics and had all this technical knowledge i never once got a real job right (laughs) i've been writing science fiction since the day i graduated and so uh since the day i defended um so there were kind of some similarities there. So I went and I met uh, Sherry Crichton, who uh, was married to, to Michael Crichton. And, 
I, I had uh, just a, we just got along, you know, um, and I truly, really loved the, the material. I loved like, I loved all of Crichton's stuff, obviously, like many, many people do. And so uh, it was really, and I had kind of that technical expertise to be able to write a, a techno thriller in the way that he, the way that he did. And so, yeah, I pitched an idea. I said, this is my favorite book. I want to write a sequel. I want to know what happens 50 years later. Right. And so, uh, so we did that. And I mean, it was a, a successful book. I'm proud of that book. It was really fun. Like uh, I had to walk this tightrope. That was a really fascinating thing to do. Right. Because he know that Crichton has all these fans and everybody has an internal idea of, of how he writes and what to expect, but it's not uh, exactly what he wrote in Andromeda strain because everybody's read lots of Crichton novels, you know? So in my head, like I got to kind of channel a little bit of Congo, like a little bit of sphere, a little, obviously lots and lots of Andromeda strain, like all of it went into, uh, into the Andromeda evolution. Um, and yeah, I had a, I kind of had a great time writing that. Um, it was a little scary, but, um, I mean, everything went great. <laughs> it was, I was kind of amazed that nothing went seriously wrong. Um, but yeah, it was a good experience. Uh, and there's another one coming. Um, I'm not writing it, but it looks like James Patterson and it is teaming up. Yeah. So that's going to be, I mean, that's going to be a big, a big one. I'm really curious what that'll be like. Uh, what's the future for you then, Daniel? What is the future? Is it screenwriting? Uh, are you currently writing a screenplay at the moment or are you writing a yeah. new novel? Uh, you know, so I spent the last, what happened was uh, during COVID, I pivoted over to doing screenplays and and film, right? So I've got lots of projects that I'm working on. I have, you know, Robopocalypse is seriously, potentially going to go into production at some point soon like it's an actual i mean i'm always saying that i've been saying that for a decade but uh also the blue afternoon that lasted forever is a serious that's the one with sean uh that's a serious potential film uh that could that i wrote that could come out and and i've got several other projects that are in the works um a lot of them are based on my short stories so if you want to know what films i'm writing go go look and see what my latest short story is because Usually I establish intellectual property by writing either a short story or a novel or whatever. And right now what I'm doing though is we had a strike, you know, I couldn't mm -hmm. write uh, for six months pretty much. So I, so what do I do? Right. I put on my other hat and I started writing a novel. Uh, so I'm in the middle of negotiating the sale of that novel right now. And so I'm going to have a new novel, which, uh, you know, that's super exciting because it's just a, uh, the difference between writing a screenplay and writing a novel is just night, night and day. And it's really nice to be able to do both um, just for your sanity. Um, so, so the next thing will probably be a novel. I think it's going to be called Heliopause. And uh, it's, um, I don't know how much to talk about it yet. I should just probably keep my trap shut about it. But, uh, and then some potential films, you know, fingers crossed. I'm hoping to finally get something made. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I mean, so I, I'm I'm having a great time, and I'm I'm living in nice green, beautiful Portland, Oregon, um, and I don't have to go to New York, and I don't have to go to LA, <laughs> and live there. And so, you know, I, I'm doing good. I'm having fun. You're living the dream. Living the dream right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I always ask this the the last question on the podcast. I always ask this question to, I've I've said this to um, Billy West as well. Mm -hmm. I've, I've said it to all of them. How do you look back on your career, but for you so far? Uh, yeah, it's kind of scary, man. You know, you think, am I like, have I peaked, right? Or like, or what's going on? And I have to say, like, I, uh, I used to care a lot more early on about what other people thought. And now I just kind of admit in my groove and I, I process a lot of what's going on in my life through my writing <laughs> and it seems to be working out. So, you know, looking back on it, I'm, um, I've, I feel incredibly lucky. Just like, just a lot of things just have been lucky in terms of how they lined up, you know? Uh, I'm lucky that people want to read about Native Americans fighting robots. <laughs> uh, it isn't like I went to a focus group and they said, hey, this is what people want. <laughs> um, I'm lucky that people care, that people are interested uh, and that I get to do this. And so, um, you know, 
part of the reason why I like this career of writing is I'm just planning on doing this till I keel over. Right. So, mm. um, so I'm still going strong and like, uh, you know, I hope to be doing this for another 30 years. Um, so yeah. Um, hmm. I'm, <laughs> I, you know, you, you learn to deal with uh, also, you know, things don't always go your way. Right. Sometimes you think a big movie is about to come out and it doesn't happen. And so, I mean, all of that ultimately the setbacks I think have been pretty healthy in terms of just uh, I'm not a total dickhead you know, kind of, but not total. Like, <laughs> I really could be. I feel like, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't have those setbacks sometimes. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with where I'm at and uh, I'm having fun still. Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalized keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewelry, whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle, or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan, and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary, or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for Christmas, or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time, Crafted Arts is the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, Villager Morgan, CF627EB. Or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk or maybe just give them a call at 077-89-94248. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about Creative Space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film, or even theater. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So do you want to have experience in making jewelry? Do you want to pick up a hobby, but do not know what to take or where to start, then look no further than the Veil Jewelry Workshops. Veil Jewelry Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry. They will help you make a range of silverware, including rings, bracelets, and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills, such as soldering, texturing, shaping, and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry, and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or even phone them at 07789 794248